discomfort Take your claim To a life without shame There are people who understand Here they're reaching out their hands And there is joy that will bloom On the other side of the second wind Hey everybody, it's Miranda. This is a good episode. If you have more than a passing familiarity with the story of Harvey Weinstein's reign of terror, you will probably recognize the name of our guest today, Rowena Chu. We had such a great conversation. It was lively and compelling. Rowena has so much wisdom and insight and experience to share with us. I learn a lot from her way of seeing things, whether it was in the podcast discussion, in our long phone conversation when we first talked, and in other interviews she's given. I love that Rowena is unapologetically outspoken, and I think that's an underrated quality. It sets a really positive example for me, and I hope for other survivors and women in general. We talk about the way we were connected, which is serendipitous and not what you'd expect. Oh, and on that subject, hi, Martins, if you're listening. I meant to say in the podcast that Jonathan worked on the lighting for the Super Bowl halftime show, not the actual Super Bowl. That would be silly instead of amazing and exciting. And hey, shout out to Jonathan. Okay, so if you follow my blog, you will have a treat in your inbox. Uh, It's titled Stop Asking Sexual Crime Victims to Explain Their Behaviors and Start Asking Perpetrators Instead. It's related to today's discussion and Rowena's experiences as a survivor in the public eye. Um, So if you're not subscribed to the blog, run, don't walk to secondwound.com and sign up now. Go ahead, I'll wait. Just kidding, no I won't. Okay, a quick important update related to today's episode. Um, After we conducted this interview, Harvey Weinstein was convicted last week of rape and sexual assault in California and sentenced to 16 years in prison in addition to the 23 years he's already serving for rape in New York State. So, good news, and brava to everybody who helped make that happen, including Rowena. One last thing before we get started, if you find the podcast valuable and you are in a position to show your support, I would really be grateful if you are up for making a small donation to help with my operating costs. This podcast is a true labor of love, and it takes up a surprising amount of my time and energy. That is my choice, and you have no obligation to chip in. But if you'd like to make it a little easier on me, I would really appreciate that. You can just press the donate button on the Truth and Consequences website or use my Venmo or PayPal handle, which are in the show notes. Thank you so much in advance if you do choose to support the show. Let's get started. Hello and welcome to Truth and Consequences, a podcast about trauma and its aftermath, where we talk about the difficult and often surprising challenges that affect us in the wake of trauma and other life-altering events. I'm your host, Miranda Pacchiana. I'm a writer and personal coach with a master's in social work and the creator of the website and online platform, The Second Wound. I am joined by my sometime co-host and friend, Catherine Robb. Catherine is an attorney, writer, survivor, and the executive director of Child U.S. Advocacy, which fights for legislation to protect children and prevent child abuse and neglect. Our guest today is Rowena Chu. 
Rowena is a former assistant to Harvey Weinstein. In 1998, after he sexually assaulted her at the Venice Film Festival, she was forced to accept a settlement and sign a non-disclosure agreement. In 2017, she featured anonymously in the New York Times investigation that ignited the Me Too movement. And in 2019, she went public with her story in Jody Cantor and Megan Toohey's book, She Said, now a major motion picture. Since leaving the film industry, Rowena has worked internationally in management consulting and international development for companies including Accenture, PwC, McKinsey, and the World Bank. She holds an MA from Oxford, an MSc from the University of London, and an MBA from London Business School. Rowena lives in Silicon Valley with her husband and four children. Such a pleasure to have you here. I was telling Catherine that, you know, I've been pacing myself with how much I absorb. But in light of us having this meeting today, I went downstairs this morning and watched, Mm. she said. Um, Oh, gosh. Yeah, I just finished it. So it was excellent. Really well well done. It's a really hard watch. It's a really hard watch. I'm sure it's a really hard watch for you. So maybe we could just dive in and start talking about that. So. Tell us, if you would, what it felt like to see your story depicted in the movie and anything else you want to share with us about that whole experience. I mean, it was obviously a very overwhelming experience. Um, I mean, there really kind of is no parallel. Obviously, I'd never been in a film before, but perhaps more significantly, I'd never been in a film that was about such a difficult and sensitive topic. And yet we all as collectively as survivors are having to talk about it in a very public space. And I don't think that it's ever going to be really possible to reconcile those feelings. And then there are just many layers about She Said. It is obviously, you know, a very well-written book. It's, you know, the Investigations as a whole, won a Pulitzer Prize. Um, obviously, Jody and Megan, a world-renowned journalist. So she said the book is a very well-written book that has become a very well-written film. But I think the relationship between the book and the movie and the relationship indeed that the journalists have with the survivors is a very difficult, complex and nuanced one. Um, I think there were varying levels of consent in terms of how your story is told, whether your story is told, at what point you want your name to be public. And I think regardless of how sensitive and sympathetic both Jodie and Megan have been with the book and Universal with Dee Dee and the other leadership at Universal have tried to be about the script, I think it is a really difficult process to take a fragile, vulnerable, difficult, sensitive story and turn it into fiction based on truth. I mean, even that is complex as well. So when I get asked this question, I feel an implicit expectation that people want me to give a quite simplistic answer. Something like, oh, it's been amazing to see my story being brought to life in the big screen. And we don't want a simplistic answer. (laughs) The reality is far more complicated than that. I am proud of the film. I am proud of it as an effort, a collective effort of women coming together to tell the truth to power, to work against depression. I'm proud of it. But at the same time, the film brings up such complicated feelings. And I I have a very complex relationship with the film. I can't even say, do I like it? I think it's it's too hard to say that. Um, And I think particularly, you know, there are moments in the film that still make me wince. There's a portrayal of a time when I tried to commit suicide in a hotel room in Hong Kong. And although that is very subtly portrayed, it is not possible to watch that scene any point without feeling a huge turmoil of emotions inside. Of course. 
Of course. And adding to this is the fact that your part of this story was included without you asking for it to be included. Far from it, you were living your life adhering to the terms of this settlement contract where you could tell no one, including your husband. And so that was intruded upon just as your life had been intruded upon by Harvey Weinstein and the lawyers and all of the follow-up to that. And so that is depicted in the film as well. It's part of that aftermath of traumatic experiences and of being overpowered. You know, you know, Rowena, when when you were just sharing that, I testify all over the country, and it Mm. it just resonated so true to me that when the private becomes the public, even if it's for a good cause, you know, for the truth, to expose people. So many times I'll have folks come up to me after I testify and say, oh, that was amazing. And that was so you're so great. And I I have this feeling of I don't feel amazing and great. I feel exposed. I feel hurt. I feel that inner kind of, you know, assaulted and vulnerability. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's so resonated what you just said to me. Yeah. I mean, to do Jodie credit, mm-hmm. it is brave of her to have that scene in the film that and to true. have written about it in the book, yeah. because it's a huge journalistic no-no mm. to uh, come and break a story to somebody's husband of 10 years. Yeah. I, I believe her that she genuinely didn't realise that Andrew didn't know anything. Mm-hmm. And so it was a culmination of unfortunate assumptions made that meant that Jodie and Andrew had that conversation on our driveway. I think it is, she has mentioned it in talks. It is written about in the book. It it did end up appearing in the movie. And I think that it is good for those of us that are involved in this very complex ecosystem of survivors and journalists and voices that are speaking out that the very least we can do is be honest when we make a mistake mm. or be honest about our vulnerabilities. And so even though it's a, the journalistic survivor relationship is incredibly complicated and we can get into that. On this point, I really do acknowledge that Jody had courage to mm-hmm. admit that this is what, ha- this is how it went down. That is true. Indeed. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It does also make me think about how your inclusion in the story is sort of similar to a criminal case that you don't have agency over how it proceeds. You experienced it. You can talk about it or not talk about it, but you only have so much control. And I imagine that watching the movie feels that way, too. I famously said when I wrote my op-ed in October 2019 that I think of all the survivors that have gone public, let's not forget to mention those that have still not been able to come forward. But for the survivors that are currently public, I do have a story where for two years I ran from journalists and refused to talk to anyone. Um, And so for a long time, I really thought hard about whether I wanted to go public. And the answer was mostly no. But when I did go public, I spoke of how, and at that time I had really young children, I had a baby and a toddler. And so my analogy was drawn from early parenting. But I spoke about how a news story grows legs or one survivor's story grows legs and runs away from you. And so there was very much that feeling that once I published my op-ed, which came out on October the 5th, 2019, that there was no going back. You could never claw back that sense of your own identity. You never quite own it again. There's a piece of you that's out there in public and people will comment on it and write about it and ask you for interviews and maybe Twitter trolls will get hold of it. But however people process it, it's very much out of your control. There's no one can't manage that. And that is a scary leap. So I think it did 
you know, people often ask, why did it take you so long to decide to come forward? And I often rebut, why did it only take me two years to come forward? Mm -hmm. I think that's actually a relatively short space of time when you think about the repercussions for the rest of your life. I always respond and say, why is it taking the law so long to catch up to the facts and to the fact that women and children are treated with such disregard and as objects as we know? Why is it taking so long? So that's something that uh, Miranda knows very well that I'm fighting for on my end is really changing the laws. Absolutely. So many things wrong with the legal system. I mean, where do we even begin? But I think for the area that Zelda Perkins and I have been involved in, we illustrated very graphically from when we were young, when we were 24 and 25, that the legal system is really stacked against women and survivors of sexual assault. You know, right from the beginning, we didn't stand a chance. Even before we even got to lawyers, colleagues internally within Miramax were saying, well, who would believe these two young assistants who have no name, no one's ever heard of Rowena Chu or Zelda Perkins, up against the most powerful producer in Hollywood. So there was, don't even talk to lawyers, no one's going to believe you. And then even when we got to lawyers, we had no money, we had no finances, we had no resources for hiring lawyers. We had to hire on a pro bono basis. Our own lawyers didn't believe us. They said, well, we'll give it a go, this suing Harvey Weinstein business, but who knows whether your story's true or not. You know, you're working against lawyers themselves that don't believe you. And then Fast forward to the NDA and all of the appalling things that happened, all of the appalling transgressions, really ethical and moral transgressions. They might not be legal transgressions, but that's the problem. If the legal system allows you to get away with ethical and moral transgressions, really, what is the legal system there for at all if it can't protect the vulnerable? And there we are sitting in a hotel room and it's defending the rich and the powerful and the famous against the young and the vulnerable. And the patriarchy as well. Yeah, I was just going to say, Miranda, the paradigm for the legal system, certainly on the criminal end, is primarily run by notions of patriarchy. Um, I mean, that's what it is. So um, Completely. But even in our case, which was a civil case, we didn't even get to it being a criminal case. We wanted it to be a criminal case, but Mm -hmm. we really had out-of-court civil negotiations, which is a mockery because they weren't in any way civil, obviously. If you're being being escorted to the bathroom and you're not allowed to keep a notepad and paper and you don't get a copy of your own 30-page legal agreement, that is far from civil. Yeah. And you've but been I also, violated. Absolutely. But also mm-hmm. in the op-ed, I wrote about these four imbalances of power. And all of them apply to the legal system. The fact that people of colour are oppressed by what is predominantly a white system that is created by the white patriarchy, that women are oppressed by men, that the rich oppress the poor. Mm-hmm. And within a corporate structure, because this was at the end of the day, a workplace harassment case, very junior people within the company cannot go up against the CEO, you're just going to lose. Mm-hmm. On all those fronts, the legal system is very much stacked up against people who already have power being able to enforce that power or gain more power. And the people who truly need protection don't get protection from the legal system at all, as you both in your work are finding out daily. Mm-hmm. Tell us more, Rowena, about what it feels like to be part of that system, not only as a woman, but also a non-white woman, an Asian woman. Do you want to talk to us about that experience? Within the legal system or within the film industry or in society as a whole. I know there's so many levels. It's it's another podcast. Well, I'm thinking (laughs) as a sexual I'm thinking as a sexual violence survivor. Anywhere you'd like to take that. 
Absolutely. Um, well, I've been privileged lately to be able to be in discussion with Angela Yeo and Ashley Chu, who are the two Asian actresses who play me in She Said. And the three of us, I think, have had very interesting, we've been on podcasts like these as a threesome. Uh, you're very welcome to have those two as well. Um, and I think we do get into very interesting discussions about Asian women and how they're perceived within society, but also then on a more granular level, how they're perceived within the film industry. And then I'm contributing to that by talking about how they're perceived within the legal system. And of course, all those things are mirrors of one another. Mm -hmm. So let's take media and entertainment, for example. When, when you look traditionally at how film and television has portrayed Asian women through the ages, you think about Susie Wong, Miss Saigon, and all mm -hmm. the portrayals of Asian women in Western literature, in Western television, Western film, and so on. And, um, you know, even the sort of fifth generation directors, Zhang Yimou with Gong Li, you know, walking to a village for miles with water. There's always an element of women, Asian women being oppressed, but also being silenced, being objectified, being sex objects in the worst case with Susie Wong, with uh, Miss Saigon, there's an element of the white saviour comes to rescue this woman. But there's also a portrayal of Asian women as being at once silent, complicit and obedient, but also being absolutely up for it in bed. And that combination yes. is incredibly toxic. And it contributes to this idea that women of colour being unable to speak for themselves. In some cases, some of the women I work with barely speak English and they're in the country illegally. They might be um, very vulnerable targets of oh, yeah. sexual oppression, sexual assault, and so on. And they have no avenue to speak up for themselves. In some cases, literally, of course, yes. they don't have time or money to go and hire lawyers, but they also might not be able to advocate for themselves in the language of this country, in, in the dominant language of this country, I mean. And so that there are so many barriers to them coming forward. And yet the, the way that they are portrayed in media leaves them more vulnerable to that assault. So those two things coming together, culminating in often a very toxic combination. So important Agreed. for people to recognize. Agreed. Thank you for explaining that. I hadn't thought it through in exactly that way before, Rowena, and I really appreciate that. It's a profound twist of racism and sexism and misogyny. Yes, the intersectionality of all of these things coming together, each of them on their own, as you well know, are deeply oppressive already and a system against which we must battle. But then some people are in the intersectionality of all those things. And that is a really dangerous place to be. One thing that I found myself wondering as I watched the film and as I read the book was, and I don't know if it's important to compare the two, but I wonder how the aftermath of your victimization by Harvey Weinstein, how that compares to the actual event because it has gone on for so long. There were so many elements of intimidation, fear, um, silencing, shame, I imagine. Mm -hmm. And my heart just really went out to you as it does to so, so, so many women, children, and men and boys too, um, who live with that. And mm -hmm. I would just love to hear mm -hmm. your thoughts about that. Well, the aftermath, that's another huge you know, area really that we could talk about. It's interesting. You used the word compare in your question. I did. And um, it's 
kind of fascinating because I myself am kind of exploring vocabulary around this. Sometimes I even catch myself saying things like, well, the aftermath and all of the things that happened, you know, all of the oppression that happened was almost worse than, and I'm like, well, no, no, hold on a second. (laughs) I think that is invalidating to the assault, which was obviously the the trigger that was traumatic and and sparked this whole thing off. So I think think one wants to be, that's right. Mm. And I absolutely don't want to be diminishing that experience. For the multitude of sexual assault survivors that will be listening to this podcast, but are just out there generally. I don't think anyone can say that anyone can minimize the trauma caused by a sexual assault because no question, the repercussions and the ripples last the rest of your life. In our case, we had not only the assault, but then we had multiple layers of oppression and bullying and tactics beyond that. And whilst I don't want to compare them, it's clearly like an onion where you're peeling away layers and layers and layers before you can even even get to what happened in the hotel room. So without comparison, I still do say things like, well, there obviously was a trauma caused by the original assault in the hotel room in Venice. But then we almost immediately were catapulted into a whole other level of um, assault and bullying and harassment in terms of what happened with the NDA. I mean, frankly, being escorted to the bathroom as though we were criminals, being kept in this law firm, being told that our friends and family's lives were at risk, perhaps our own lives were at risk, that there's no question that that was deeply harrowing and hugely traumatic as well. And then there were all the side shows such as our lawyers didn't believe us, such as his lawyers said, if you have the money, why do you need therapy? Then there was the trauma that emerged from the 20 years of living with the NDA, of trying to go to therapists, but not being able to talk to them, of being locked out, of talking to friends, even friends and family who already knew about what happened. We weren't able to take them in our confidence of constantly looking over our shoulder, wondering which one of the people in our lives is real or has Harvey sent Black Cube spies to come and have lunch with us or to pretend to be journalists to wondering when a journalist is going to turn up on your doorstep to elements of that story that drove me to suicide you know they are all traumatic and triggering ongoing things that happened in the 20 years before the journalists came and then I have to say that when the journalists did come I mean they came in between as well but I mean when the story broke when the story finally broke in 2017 you're, of course, not free, as we've just discussed, from a re-triggering and more layers of trauma, because you're now wondering, wow, everyone else is speaking out. There's a certain pressure to do so. Should I do so? I feel like all the downside is going to be on me. I'm going to lose all my privacy. And then I finally, after two years, do decide to do that. And it's a weird juxtaposition between an experience that is uplifting. It is uplifting and empowering but it is also re-triggering and traumatic at the same time. Beautifully said, and I can relate 100%. Yeah. It yeah. chokes me up a little bit to hear you talk about, you know, what you said about comparing, because it's a word I need to be careful of even for myself. And I think because my focus in my website and my other work, The Second Wound, is all about that aftermath, sometimes I believe that I have diminished the trauma in my own mind, because I have gone back and worked very, very hard on that trauma. And I have peeled back the layers. But of course, we know it never goes away. And we don't want it to minimize that for ourselves. We need to understand how real that was and how formative it was in our nervous system and our trust and our way of seeing ourselves in the world, even though we can do a lot of repair on it. I think that's true for all of us and all survivors. 
I also think about all of the institutional failures that happen, whether, you know, for Miranda and I, the the institution of the family and how it failed us and how uh, gender restrictions and gender inequity failed us, you know, that institution. Mm -hmm. But then if, you know, you step outside your home or you step outside your work, you have the criminal justice institution, you have the civil system, which is incredibly patriarchic and sexist and misogynistic and run mostly by white men. Um, You have the media institution. All of these institutions live within this web of patriarchy um, and silencing women. So I can just imagine how the trauma just comes in layers in terms of the onion example that you brought. I think it creates more opportunities for uh, survivors that do speak out to run into really the the toxic nature, which is pervasive, the sexism, the objectification of women, the devaluing of women, the lack of power and control of women. I mean, still, like, look at our country. Look how many women are in Congress right now. Look how many women are governors. You know, when are we going to get a woman in the White House, right? So, This is a problem that is across all institutions and in every sector of society. And when you start to speak out, you realize, oh, oh, here it is again, right? Yes, absolutely. I mean, it's a really tricky balance, but Mm -hmm. I at once want to acknowledge and validate, of course, my fellow survivors who I know full well, as do you both, because we're all of us on this podcast in this very public space. Uh, All of the things that Catherine spoke about and alluded to, the systems, the multitude of systems that work against women, that work against survivors, that work against people of colour, it feels dizzying sometimes because you're very aware of it on a daily basis when you're speaking out in a public space. And so I once want to validate survivors that speak publicly by acknowledging what a sacrifice and a burden it is to go back to the point where, you know, people come up to you in the street and say, you're amazing, you're a hero, and it must feel so uplifting, which is also a statement that gives me a bit of pause. So recognising the burden and the sacrifice, the personal sacrifice that public survivors undergo is really important. And then simultaneously, I also want to validate private survivors, because to go back to that point, some people have only had, again, I use that word very carefully, their trauma is restricted to the original assault, because for various reasons, they've been imprisoned in that. They've either signed an NDA and they're not able to speak about it, or they fear repercussions on their family, or or maybe they just don't have the resources. And so they're imprisoned and locked in that Mm. original assault. And they listen to all these people who are doing public things and they're probably listening to this podcast right now I want to make sure that that experience is also validated because it is incredibly traumatic to have that one initial experience and then be second guessing yourself saying oh but that was years ago or I should be over that now and not having anyone to talk to about that and being locked in a prison about that because that was me for 20 years Mm. I always remember even though it looks like I'm now on a very public platform I always remember the time when it was just me and I was making excuses for myself saying I don't know why I can't get over this or I should be through it by now or it was so long ago in my childhood why can't I move on and I think people who are locked in silence will ask themselves those questions and so I want to make sure that to those who are listening who are in that situation your trauma is just as valid as anyone else's yeah and and you don't you don't have to sign an agreement to be imprisoned 
We are imprisoned by the restraints based on our sexist and misogynistic society. Certainly those survivors that are not able to at this point come forward, they should be honored and respected deeply because you really can't compare someone who can come forward and speak, come up to a microphone or speak in a podcast or speak before a congressional committee to someone who is carrying that same level of restriction and pain and sadness and trauma that is unable to do that. I was on the other side of that too. And it's interesting because we just had last week on the podcast, or actually it drops today, the journalist Nikki Wise and C. Egan, who covered the Cosby story and did the podcast and book Chase and Cosby. And when I heard her speak about Chase and Cosby on another podcast, I just felt like she was standing up for me and she was standing up for victims in such a powerful way. And I, I reflect on it now that I know her and I've interviewed her. I felt so far away from that. I felt like if only... I could reach that world where people get to join together and say this publicly, you know, it feels very limiting and stifling and you already feel like you've been silenced. So even if you speak up in your personal life, I think that's probably a common experience. Yes, absolutely. Agreed. Maybe we could lighten it up a little bit. And I think it might be fun to talk about how we got connected, Rowena. Do you want to tell that story or, or would you like me to? Yes, absolutely. Great. <laughs> I think that um, you might have a slightly different version of that story. Though. Okay. Uh, I'd so love we, to hear we, yours. We both should tell our stories okay, and then great. we can compare. But <laughs> okay. um, actually, our mutual acquaintance, our mutual very dear friend, yes, who very is a neighbor of Miranda's, um, is somebody that I've known from a really, really long time ago. Um, so I was was a young student myself. I think I was in first year of university, which would have me at about 21, 22. So a few years before my experience with Weinstein and a young lad came and he was only 18 and he started volunteering and hanging around the backs of theatres for plays that I produced as a university student. So it's funny, but in the land of the blind, the one-eyed man is king, as they say. So (laughs) in those days, we looked like a group of university students that were very mature and knew just what we were doing. And Steve was a high school kid who felt like he didn't really know what he was doing I, I still very clearly remember him at the age of 18 That's so um, sweet. this is at he, oxford right this is at oxford university okay. yes. yes so um whilst i was at oxford i produced a lot of plays and i was actually president of the oxford university drama society so i was very much involved in theater at the time um wow. steve was kind of incredible he popped around of nowhere he started volunteering his time free for us i said why don't you come along for the ride you know you're doing this play now we'll be doing a number of plays in the future why don't you just hang around for a bit, work on these plays with us and see what happens. And at that very young age, in a country that was not his own, he just sort of pitched up and started joining in, which I think Sounds is like really him. wonderful. Yeah. Um, and so he lived in Oxford for a couple of years doing that with myself and also my best friend from that time, who's very involved in that. He's very connected with the whole Weinstein story as well. So we might come on to his story later. But he okay. worked with the two of us on various plays. And then he went off to Bournemouth to do a course in media. And it being, let's see, 94 95 that sort of era we didn't have social media we didn't have Facebook Um, we barely had email addresses actually so when he went off to Bournemouth we just lost touch Um, and it's only through the advocacy that I've been doing and the public nature of the Weinstein story that Steve and I have gotten reconnected and we got reconnected very recently and by coincidence he told me about his amazing neighbour Miranda and all of her work (laughs) I thought that we would have a lot in common. And so 
he connected us. Well, Steve has been on the podcast. He was one of my very first guests because he used to be CEO of a nonprofit here in Connecticut called Love 146 that works to fight sex trafficking of children and rehabilitate kids and does excellent work. And it kind of makes me chuckle that Steve did not hear or see your name in print anywhere in the last five years because it was a little bit living under a rock for him. Yeah, I was going to say, <laughs> where have you been, Steve? You've been under a Steve. rock. <laughs> Come on. So um, I love Steve. I love his wife and family. And they used to live directly across the street from us on our little country road. Now they live down the street. And he just texted me a month or two ago and said, hey, Miranda, do you know Rowena Chu? And I was like, uh, duh, yeah. <laughs> and he said, oh, well, I knew her years ago and we reconnected and I told her about your podcast. Would you like me to connect you? And it was just sort of, as I said to you in my email, I felt like we had already an instant layer of trust because we both know and adore and trust Steve. And uh, I felt like we kind of were kindred spirits and hit it right off. And we're so grateful to have you. Incredible story, really. It's a story that spans decades and countries. The fact that we've all come together in this way is really quite extraordinary. So... And it. a fun little tidbit is that his son is now doing lighting for theater. I, he told me all about that. And it sounds like his son is a chip off the old block. So that's amazing. <laughs> He's a great kid. And so Catherine's coming to my house on Sunday for a small Super Bowl party. And while we're watching the Super Bowl, we will be seeing Steve and Jamie's son's work because he's helping to light the Super Bowl. Yes, so. you mentioned that. That's incredible. Yes. yes. So Isn't that, cool. It's all cool full, coming full circle here. <laughs> it's cool. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean. Serendipity. Exactly. The universe works in mysterious ways. <laughs> you know, Rowena, one thing that really struck me when we were talking privately before was when you told me about, okay, well, first of all, I'm thinking as we're talking about how many questions people get, like, why didn't you come forward sooner? And how that conversation is just inevitably focused on why didn't, why did to yes. people who are victimized when really that should never be where we're starting. It should be, why did someone choose to offend against someone else? And then why did a system support that? So I shouldn't be surprised, but I thought it was really intriguing when you told me about how journalists were asking you about why you went to Harvey's hotel room and tell us that full story. Yeah, and I think this is the topic of victim blaming, which is, of course, complex, again, and highly pervasive, I think. And I think it's interesting that you raise those questions, because those questions are often asked by people who, if you ask them directly, they would say, oh, no, but we're very sympathetic to survivors. And this was a survivor-centric interview. You know, a couple of times I'm like, that was not a (laughs) survivor-centric interview, at least not an informed (laughs) survivor-centric interview. Um, So you're right. I think that journalists sometimes in an effort to, I suppose, relate to the listener or relate to the reader and put themselves in their shoes, will ask you to, if you like, justify what you were doing. And and that that can be all sorts of levels. What were you doing in the hotel room? What were you wearing at the time? What did you say? Why didn't you run? Why didn't you scream? And I know these questions come up all the time in Mm -hmm. legal cases on the stand. And I think you've only got to look back at Weinstein's LA trial, which only took place a few weeks ago, of course, and examine the line of questioning there for all of the women that took the stand. And it was very much like, but you had lunch with him afterwards, but you emailed him, but he you received favours for your movie but your movie got commissioned here and there and so on. And you're right. It's very absent, the sense of clearly the aggressor has no agency whatsoever. 
that's barely mentioned and exactly. it's kind of staggering how the imbalance is so much on the survivor we've already talked about the balance of power being tipped towards the aggressor not the survivor and yet the survivor is questioned and cross-examined on every single aspect of their behavior around that time. Uh, and a lot of that is to do with California law. Uh, I'm connected with the consent awareness network that talk about, you know, what the burden of proof is in a California courtroom in order to get the conviction that we needed in Harvey's case. But it was pointed out to me, and it's been pointed out to me several times that this is only true in the case of this particular crime, sexual assault and rape. Exactly. Mm-hmm. If you are mugged, on a street. You don't take the stand and you're not asked, well, what handbag were you carrying exactly? And why wasn't anyone with you at the time? And what were you doing walking down that street anyway at 11 o'clock at night? So that line of question is absent for other victims of crime. And so we need to ask ourselves as a society, why do we have these expectations for victims of sexual crime? There seems to be a huge differentiation. We still seem to be harboring under the illusion that the woman is somehow to blame, that we somehow seduced them, that we didn't say no enough. There are suppositions that I find them to be incredulous, especially because they're sometimes even applied to children or minors. Yes, you're right. Those poor, poor men. I mean, how can they help it? Yeah. Right. When I'm testifying as a survivor myself, I get the same questions. Why did you take so long? Why didn't you tell anyone? Why didn't you tell your mother? Like, yeah. I mean, if yeah. it was an actual physical type of civil wrong, people right. would be like, oh, of course. The thing that we're forgetting, too, when people scrutinize victims and survivors is let's look at when you were negotiating that NDA, Rowena, <laughs> you and Zelda, your criteria, your priority was to stop Harvey from hurting people. Okay, And victims aren't given the benefit of the doubt for their intentions. But most of the time, that is our intention. We don't want other people hurt. Right? Definitely. And I know that you were asking to put systems in place with HR and for Harvey to go to therapy and for Zelda to witness it, things like that. At least that's what I saw in the film, Um, which I doubt those were put in place. But that's uh, what they you were wanted. In, yeah, and they were enshrined in the NDA. I have it here in black and white. I have okay. the wording for some of those clauses that we negotiated hard for. Now, a lot of those clauses that we pushed really hard for didn't make it. For example, we spent a long time negotiating the fact that he could either travel with one male assistant or two female assistants in the room at the same time. Because Zelda and I felt a lot safe. He didn't mess with us when we were together. He okay. only messed with us when we were separate. And so on that basis, we said, okay, well, Smart. then he should actually have three assistants. And that means that there's two assistants in the room at any one time whilst one is off duty and that's you know an assistant at that stage they cost 18,000 a year that's less than his sushi bill for one weekend I'm sure so to employ another assistant would have been absolutely minimal in terms of his budget and operations and so on and And if you wanted to twist that and say okay Miramax you stump up the money for this you're protecting yourself, board members. I mean, I'm not saying this is a good way to look at it. You're protecting yourself and your business because you know what? One day this is all going to come down on your head and you're going to get sued and Miramax is going to have to close down and declare bankruptcy, which it did when it became the Weinstein Company. So if you won't do this out of the goodness of your hearts to protect future victims, think about yourself and your bottom line. If you don't stop what Harvey's doing, He's going to reoffend. We all know he's going to reoffend. So, you know, we pushed really hard for this on a corporate level to try to get this enshrined in Miramax. It didn't work, you know, obviously. But certain clauses like Harvey must go to therapy and it must be sex therapy. 
not just any old therapy, not just, oh, it's so hard to be famous and all these women keep throwing themselves at me sort yeah. of therapy. It's got to be sex addiction therapy. And Zelda's going to attend the first session to make sure that he's actually honest about what he says to the therapist. You know, that did happen. That it happened. In. Oh. It did happen. Oh, but, you okay. know, behind closed doors, yeah. he doesn't. The problem is that it didn't have any teeth. Sure. But, but again, you know, there's so much ambivalence in all of this. The fact that those clauses ended up in our NDA, I see that as a point of pride. Okay, now, great. Okay, the next step of getting them to be enforceable mm-hmm. is a whole other matter. And that is just down to the power dynamic. We didn't have any hold over Miramax or Weinstein or the company or the board members or the lawyers, right. you know, basically Harvey's enablers. Harvey's enablers had to want to make it happen and they didn't. They didn't, right? What incentive is there mm-hmm. to piss off your boss who is already who already has an anger problem? Um, so but, they're not going to be incentivized to get that to happen. So and there wasn't there wasn't a penal, penalty clause or anything like that. We put penalty clauses in, try to get yeah. those to actually You're happen. Though. Yeah, That's right, really right, tricky, right? right? right, right yeah. So, um, for example, it said that should Harvey settle with any other woman in the next couple of years, years let's mm-hmm. say it triggered he had to report himself to michael eisner or ceo of disney whoever was ceo of disney at that time so he basically had to turn himself into his parent company can you see harvey doing that yeah. i mean yeah. that's just impossible to enforce and since we weren't allowed to keep a copy of our contract and if all of these yeah. women are silenced by ndas i mean if but some woman that's, came that's forward, why you couldn't keep your contract if a woman came forward about harvey within two years of our nda and we had had the copy of it, there's so many ifs and buts zelda could have stood up and said hey i've got a document here that says that you know harvey must resign from his position and so on and so forth but in reality that's not how it happens because what happens is that each of these sexual assault survivors isolated from one another we didn't know until jody and megan and ronan farrow came and broke the story we didn't know about the network and the chain of other survivors and we weren't able to connect with them so we couldn't say hey we've got a document that protects you to unknown survivor two years down the line because there's no way there's no club now there is, but there was no club where we could all connect with one another. And that is the perniciousness of an NDA. It's yep. literally a silencing agreement. So there is no public record. It's not a news story. There's no way of reaching out to other survivors and say, I had a similar experience. But brava to you and to Zelda. You're what, 23 years old and you fought for this. Yeah. So I give you so much credit and so much admiration. I tip my hat to both of you. As you know, I didn't get to read the document myself. And that was another story, the fight to get our NDA, even after the journalists had broken the Weinstein story. We didn't get to see our NDA until the summer of 2018. So it took a full 18 months to even persuade any set of lawyers, our lawyers, his lawyers, anybody to give us a copy of that NDA. But when I finally sat down and read it, A, I cried. But B, I saw what a testament that piece of paper is to the level of oppression that we were subject to at 24 and 20. I mean, I was actually literally horrified. I do remember it as being an incredibly horrific experience, obviously one that stayed with me for the rest of my life. But it wasn't until reading the words in black and white that I saw the level of oppression that we as young women were subject to. But I also see read it with immense pride for the 24 year old and 25 year old that we were because I was like wow this is actually really far-sighted I know we couldn't get this enforced and I'm reading it now with the eyes of a 40 year old and thinking oh yeah what were you thinking ladies how were you ever (laughs) going to get that to happen but well you weren't assuming that everything was rigged against victims 
Yes, and also I, this is naive, but I think we assumed that people had a moral backbone and they sure. did what they signed up to do because we yeah. did. We did. We signed right. the agreement, and the agreement said never speak to anyone, and we never spoke to anyone. So we just sort of operated on a spoken assumption that oh, if it's a legal document and you've signed it, you've got to do the things that legal document says. In retrospect, that's a really naive approach. But at that time, I think it's human nature to sort of measure the world by your own standards, especially if you're in your early 20s. So we thought, well, we're going to do We're going to abide by our side of the agreement. So, you know, this is a legal document. It's enshrined in the law. And we had much more respect for the law than we do nowadays. And so we thought, well, no, Miramax has to. And this is where it gets really interesting. By the way, it wasn't just Harvey that signed that document. His personal lawyer signed that document. The head of Allen and Overy, which is a respected London law firm, still a very respected London law firm, was in the room. So we sort of expected that the folks that enabled Harvey, they weren't called enablers at that time, but the people that supported Harvey would respect a legal, because they were lawyers. They were officers of the law. And now I'm very skeptical. I'm like, oh yeah, but they were a bunch of white men who were just taking the biggest (laughs) paycheck they could possibly find. I get it now, but I think at 24 and 25, we did not look at it that way. We thought officers of the law have a responsibility and a duty of care to make sure that the law is properly enacted. I don't think it's naive at all, actually. I think the irony is if you had spoken up at that point, they would have had to produce the document. People could have seen it because if they if they had tried to enforce it against you, if you had spoken up, they would have had to produce it in discovery and it would have been a public document. I don't know. I I mean, I love. You know, in some ways, it's but very fascinating they, to kind of have um, discussions yeah. around that. They had it, you between a rock and a hard place. They I don't know. They yeah. actually, I mean, actually enshrined in the NDA. I mean, there's so many shocking clauses, but another mm-hmm. a completely shocking clause in the NDA is, okay, first they took a list of our friends and family, as you know, and it's called Schedule 5. So they listed all of our friends and family that knew anything about the assault or knew any details really about my working for Harvey. Then there's a clause in the main body of the NDA that talks about if anyone from Schedule 5 or if we ourselves leaked the story to the press or in public or whatever, or talked to anybody, in law, we would be obligated to defend Harvey Weinstein and the Miramax <laughs> company and Bob Weinstein and say that our friends and family were lying. So it's a clause that forces you to lie. It's a clause because, that forces us to lie. Right, to, right. To and I, perjury. That's insane. Correct. But I don't understand how a top legal law firm. Okay, let, let's set Harvey Weinstein aside for a minute. Let, we all agree that he's a monster and he's pathologically disturbed. So let's yep. just set him aside because he's not going to do the right thing. But right. why did a top London law firm allow it? Because they're getting paid. Because there was a big fat check on the table. big fat check. Correct. But can you go so far as to say this big fat check is so huge that it doesn't matter. We can circumvent the law or any ethics or morals, and we can actually put in a legal document that these children, essentially, are or these young people are obligated to lie 
as a result of the legal I mean that just seems it's just insane. Can you even insanity. put it in a legal document? But it's there in black and white in my document, and well, I'm very happy to share the wording with well, you. Well, so, you can put it in a legal document. It doesn't make it legal, nor does it make it right or moral or correct. And they're bankrupt all of as those well. Things. And we didn't God. we didn't really know that because we thought, well, they're lawyers. They've gone through years of legal right, education. Right. So if they're willing to put it in a contract, it must in some way be legal and enforceable. And, and so that's why we ended up with the situation situation where we abided by our side of the legal agreement because we were greatly in awe of a legal document and the other side were like well whatever it's not even worth a piece of paper it's written on yeah you know it makes me think of of course I deal a lot with child sexual abuse right it is always those situations where children are like well he's the priest he's practically god I've got to believe him or it's my uncle. Everybody loves Uncle Fred. He's such a good guy. Or it's the counselor at the camp or something, right? Everyone loves him. He's so good. So it's always those scenarios where you think, oh, but they're so pure and perfect. They would never do anything like this if it wasn't right or legal. That's right. That's what they did to you. Last week, I was on a rival podcast, which you will forgive me for mentioning, but I was on Real Crime Podcast with Jim Clemente. Mm -hmm. And he mentioned the whole idea of the pillar of society person. And we had a long discussion about the pillar of society person. And you're right. And all of those examples that you just listed, the local priest, the Mm -hmm. uncle, the, the summer camp coordinator, the teacher at school to Harvey Weinstein's role in the film industry. These are all in some ways pillars of the society that they operate in and that process of speaking up against a pillar of society not only is it legally ethically and morally difficult societal wise and culturally it's almost impossible to speak out against someone who is so revered in society i think Mm -hmm. there's something psychologically where people just don't believe it right um we talked about survivor-centric interviews Mm -hmm. And there's an interview that I've done with CBS where it's discussed the idea that how could somebody who was known so long for these very touching and sympathetic and empathetic movies like Life is Beautiful, The Postman Always Rings Twice, possibly enact such crimes. It's like Harvey apologetics. It's like saying, he was such a good guy. Got the movie posters on my student wall at university. Those movies touched me. How can Mm. it possibly be true that someone is so wonderful and so touching could do this? That is not a survivor-centric approach, I mean, look look at Penn State. Everyone was like, Jerry Sandusky, he's such a good guy. Bill Cosby. By the way, it's always the good guy. It's not the creep. Well, he is a creep. Harvey is clearly a creep. Sometimes it's the creep. Right. Sometimes (laughs) it's a creep. But it's not like what I think most people think of, like the creep driving in the white van. It's the good guy. The one that everyone reveres and loves. Well, as long as we're talking about your interview on Real Crime Profile, and you went on there with Sarah Ann Massey. Sarah Ann Massey. I was thrilled because listeners to this podcast will know I'm a big fan of Real Crime Profile. And I woke up in the morning and opened my podcast and was thrilled to be able to hear you on there. You two brought up something I thought was really interesting. You had a discussion that opened my mind about assistants of Harvey's that were considered to be somewhat complicit in his crimes. And you had some really insightful thoughts about that that I would love you to share with our listeners. 
Yes, I think that ties into victim blaming. And it's another topic that has been of great contention, really. Um, I think it is the actress dynamic is simpler because people understood the casting couch and the pressures of the casting couch. And so um, in some senses, they weren't directly Harvey's employees. So they would come and then they would be pressured to offer sexual favours in exchange for roles in movies. And that's clearly, in a more black and white sense, a heinous thing to do. I think for the assistants, they were in a much more complex position in some ways because for many assistants particularly people who had worked for Harvey for a while they would be considered to be part victim and part complicit and so that's really complicated which side of the line are you really on if you are the person that books actresses to come and see Harvey in his hotel room maybe even sometimes late at night and you're the person that goes down to reception and collects that person you are yourself a young woman you're collecting another young woman and you're taking them up to the hotel room and we now know, goodness knows what is happening in those hotel rooms, you are left with this incredible burden of guilt and sense that you might have been complicit and maybe even villainous in something that you didn't endorse and you didn't do, but that you were inadvertently part of. And then there's always questions raised about, but surely if he had worked for Harvey for a while and you knew his reputation, you know, you must have known there was something horrific happening in the hotel. So, you know, there's another layer of questions along with the what were you wearing and why were you there in the first place? There's like, but surely you must have known sort of line of questioning. And I think that is incredibly difficult and complicated, particularly because assistants are invariably young women. They're invariably yes. young. They're yes. invariably women. I mean, there's a few men, but they're mostly women. They're mostly incredibly young. And let's face it, they are currently being victimized by Harvey themselves. They're also experiencing his sexual pressure and so on and so forth. And the women who come to the hotel room as actresses are often older and far more famous. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, sometimes I even thought, well, what do you do? Because these are adults. We're adults. I'm mm-hmm. 24, but I'm maybe escorting someone who's in their late 20s or, or 30. Do I say, no, don't don't go there? I mean, it's it's so complicated, right? Aren't mm-hmm. they going to look at you and be completely horrified? And do you have a right to say, who are you anyway? I mean, do you have a right to say, don't go meet Harvey Weinstein for the probably the biggest career break of your life? It's yes. unlikely to end well for the assistant. And I've often described the assistant role I'm British, so you'll pardon this analogy. (laughs) But I often describe the assistant role as like the butler in Downton Abbey. You know, we're in the room, but we're not expected to say anything. We're not expected to interfere. We don't have anything in this power battle. If it's an aspiring actress who's making a name for themselves, they're probably pretty famous, or at least they're almost household name. They've been in a couple of movies. Harvey's certainly a household name. We can't get into that dynamic. Um, we have no power to negotiate even on behalf of other people, let alone ourselves. Yeah, so you're almost invisible. We are supposed to be invisible, like mm-hmm. like the butler in Downton Abbey. We are of a different class. And our job right. is literally to be undetectable. You know, you're supposed to slide in and slide out of the room and you do the things that half you asks you to do. You perform the functions of your job, but you're not expected to insert yourself or your view or your position on anything. And so I think that element of complicity is extremely complicated we're certainly often accused of it i do get defensive when we talk about complicity among assistants because i'm like well it goes back to the whole victim blaming hold on a second you've got a dude who is in his 60s who is incredibly powerful who can pick up a phone and summon sylvester sloan or tom cruise to his room you're not blaming him oh no the 24 year old who escorted the actress from reception to the hotel oh clearly she's the person to blame in this equation 
Well, I think this is crucial across the board when it comes to sexual victimization, because what we're talking about is the person who's lower on the scale is getting pressured to override their discomfort. And that's your job as an assistant. And that is the position you get put in as a child, especially as a girl. And you are blamed and questioned for not doing that. And then when it results in victimization through no fault of your own, you are blamed and questioned for having participated in adhering to rules that you were told this is how it has to be done. Otherwise, it's not respectful. Otherwise, you won't get opportunities. This is how it's done. And you need to play the game. And then you're asked, why would you play the game? There's another component. Just thinking about how unspeakable it is. You know, we see this with children all the time that know that other children are being abused by this priest or coach. It's unspeakable. So the nature of trauma, you're having that kind of -of out-of-body experience, right, where you're disassociating. So there's that whole other level. And we're talking about young women that have no power at all. So there must be that bio-neurological thing that's happening as well in those situations of great fear and trauma. I think that is true. It is also true that I saw people who lost their jobs within half an hour or certainly yeah. didn't last a day. You okay. know, we were frequently told, if you don't want this job, if you don't want to do this, we have like 20 Harvard Business School graduates lined up to take it. So it is true that there were young women who were bright and graduating from top universities around the country who were willing to come here and work for free. And uh, If you yourself are one of those, you know, I graduated Oxford University. I had friends who were investment banks, management consultants, making some factor of multitude far more money than I did. I was making mere pittance. Maybe some people were pulling in 10 times what I did, you know, who graduated Oxford at the same time. I was there. So that lends credence to the idea that they can find another me tomorrow. And you see people getting fired all the time. So it's pointless because if you object, you're just going to lose your job. And the next person who's willing to be complicit is going to come and take your place. I think, however, there are many levels of firing line that we should focus on. I mean, yes. Okay. We've done the work to like get Harvey in jail. And that wasn't easy as people who testified in New York and LA will tell you. What about the lawyers? What about Bob Hutensky? What about the board members? What about the accountants who like managed the processing of the checks? There are so many levels that we could attack why attack people who have little power little power attack the people who are still working in hollywood today who are still at large who really are still profiting off decades that harvey assaulted women and built a career based on that and he may not be profiting off it but other people still are yeah go after the members around the king's table not the poor souls that are delivering and serving those at the table well in the film the accountant is shocked to find out that these were actually sexual assaults and not just what did he say like extramarital things i mean why aren't we holding him to account he should have known here's a grown successful man in new york city working as accountant for a major organization why isn't everyone questioning him they knew they They like to tell themselves that it's extramarital affairs so that they can sleep at night so they can go home and tell their shocked wives who also featured in the movie that this is oh no but i mean it's a perfect defense isn't it but is it what they really believed i mean these were people of the world come on i find that unlikely it's very simply bullshit they know exactly (laughs) 
exactly. All <laughs> but, right. Well, but they all, they all they all colluded in this cover up. They yeah, all say sure. to each other, "Oh no, but this is what we believe." Right? 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 Meet you on my yacht this weekend in the Caribbean. Exactly. They're sitting on the yacht, literally <laughs> sipping champagne, saying to each other, "Okay, guys, this is a story, isn't it? This is what we believe. We got this." Yeah. So, exactly. whose values do we want to question here? Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. All right. Well, we're getting close to wrap up time and I'd love to hear your hopeful signs. But before we do that, is there anything else, any other points either of you would like to make? Rowena? I think I'd love to talk a little bit about the issue of uh, financial compensation for um, survivors, because I think this is a very important topic. And Miranda and I had a great discussion about this when we talked earlier in this podcast. Mm -hmm. And it's again, it's a really complex issue. Um, I have lots of thoughts around, but I think it's, Interesting, because we talked about the, we will go back to the analogy of the onion, and we talked about unwrapping the onion and the many layers of oppression and harassment and bullying that we all experienced. And I think that whilst I can look back in my story on the events of 98 and say, oh, clearly, obviously, what Harvey did in the hotel room in Venice is wrong. What all of the enablers did in the glass offices of Allen and Overy also in 98 is wrong. I think when it comes to the different players from 2017 onwards, it becomes much more complicated. Uh, whilst I have great admiration, obviously, for Jodie and Megan and what they did and the book that they wrote and then for Universal Pictures in making this movie, there's still a complex relationship in the sense that they took my story, they are the gatekeepers of that story. I don't get to tell my story directly, which is very interesting. Why am I not able to bring my story to the world in an unfiltered way? Why do I need a neutral voice, that of the journalist, to filter my story, make it palatable for society and to be gatekeepers to my truth? That's another whole, that will require another podcast. But I want to bring all that back to a really interesting point. They're compensated in ways that victims and survivors often aren't. They win public adulation. They are respected. They get Pulitzer Prizes. They're often paid vast sums of money to be at speaking events. They get a publishing deal. Survivors somehow are locked out of a lot of this. We have, none of us have received prizes for anything that we did. A lot of us are trying to get a publishing deal and can't. We're trying to get movies made and we can't. Somehow she said the book and she said the movie, tell the story of the journalists that broke the story, not the women that broke the story, the journalists. And somehow that's much more palatable to society than survivor stories directly. Financial compensation is only one aspect of that. A lot of survivors are doing this work for free, Certainly for the last three years, I have never taken any speaking engagement fees. Uh, The most I've ever received is an honorarium of, say, $100. But that doesn't even cover transportation and clothing and makeup and babysitting. And And I actually do want to raise these points. I'm a mother of four children. They are 13, 11, 8 and 5. When I started, they were six months to five and eight. Replacing a mother of children that are that young is expensive. Yeah. I personally have dipped into my pocket to cover me when I'm not here. I'm usually paying the airfare for wherever I'm traveling to. I'm giving my time for free. I work freelance. I'm paid on an hourly basis. No offense to this podcast, but I'm sitting here doing this podcast and not being paid by the hour for whatever work that I am otherwise doing. 
Um, so I'm giving off my time for free. I travel for free. Obviously, as women, we usually fund our own makeup and dress. The guy next to me on the panel just turns up in his jeans. Can we also yeah. discuss that? So, true. Um, so there's a lot of hidden cost to being a woman in a public arena with expectations. And then it seems to be an enormous imbalance between the people who are there professionally in terms of how they are rewarded with prizes, adulation, respect, money, which are all of these dimensions. And the way that survivors, the most you get is you get some level of respect and you get some level of abuse for telling your story. But it's never considered that it's not part of your profession and therefore you'll get no awards at work and you don't receive any financial compensation because this whole thing all kicked off because newspapers can't pay sources. And I understand that because you certainly don't want someone who who receives a million dollars to sell their made up rate story to the Sun newspaper tabloids in the UK. But three years later, when we're often all speaking on the same panels and we're all doing the same kind of work and gatekeepers are financially rewarded and survivors are not at all. I think that is a fascinating equation that we need to look into that people rarely acknowledge. And meanwhile... The line we always hear is, oh, she's just in it to get money. Right, right. And it's frustrating because it's literally said of Zelda and I, well, they opened their legs in 98 for money and they're back to do it again in 2017. And I'm constantly thinking, actually, my household, my husband and I and my children have made enormous sacrifices. And some of those sacrifices have been financial. My earning has dropped, but I also have paid out plenty of money for the meeting. I have funded my own speaking, but those who do it professionally get funded for speaking. Those who are telling a personal story funds their own journey to tell that personal story. That's a massive difference. And it's really complicated because these people who are doing this professionally, you know, they're journalists or or whatever, they've still got a private life. They've got other aspects to their profession, but we Mm -hmm. survivors are actually giving our private lives in this journey, and we receive very little acknowledgement, recognition, financial or otherwise. Well, I think that these authors, these journalists, they are part of an institution that is valued and is controlled and run by men. So, of course, the institution is going to be more valuable, revered, respected, it's incredibly complicated, isn't it? I mean, mm-hmm. Jodie and Megan doubtless worked extremely, and then they did. They they are heroes, and, and it is clear, and she said, the book and the movie, you know, they are lauded for the heroes that they are. And they did indeed work very hard, and they broke a story where other journalists weren't able to. Mm-hmm. But they had the protection of the New York Times behind them. Mm-hmm. And there's a very important scene at the beginning of She Said, where Rachel Crooks asks Megan Toohey, is the New York Times going to help me if Trump sues me? Yep. And Megan tells her that the New York Times cannot protect its sources, but the New York Times can protect its employees. And so then the level of risk that they take Mm -hmm. as journalists, yes, they get hounded themselves. And we see scenes of that. We see scenes where, Mm -hmm. you know, somebody calls Megan, an anonymous voice calls Megan in the dark of the night and says, I'm going to rape you and dump your body in the Hudson. Mm -hmm. And that's traumatic. And this is another situation where I don't want to diminish from the trauma of what the journalists went through to break the story. But I want to acknowledge that, that it's also true that 
survivors don't get any legal protection. They're not doing this as part of their jobs. They don't even get a salary for what they're doing for their time. And yet their level of exposure is huge because none of us can afford, if Harvey comes after me, which by the way, he still can. And that's a legal point that's often missed. He could easily sue me for breaking my NDA. I'm doing it right now. Mm -hmm. Um, Just because it's all out, it doesn't mean that the NDA isn't a legal document that could have some hold over me should he choose to. So it's just a level of legal exposure that's really quite terrifying and a level of, I suppose, personal exposure. You know, you're making your soul bare and vulnerable uh, for what often seems to be a media circus. Mm-hmm. And I think, I think focusing on that too, it's not an either or situation. They both coexist together. Yeah, they did great work, but also there is this other problem that no one talks about. And I yes. appreciate you bringing this up, Rowena, yes. so insightfully. I don't we think there's an easy solution, it. but if we yeah. don't shed light, it's it's more of yeah. telling truth to power. If we don't shed light on these issues, if we don't mention them, then they just get brushed under the carpet and they continue. And this is why I love talking to you, because you have so many unique insights. It's really enlightening. Thank you. It's been a huge honor. (laughs) Yeah, me too. Oh, my gosh. And I hope we're going to continue our conversations. Absolutely. I'd love to continue. And um, and we we should talk about having Angela and Ashley on and some of these other companies because they have a very fascinating view about what it's like to be an Asian woman in Hollywood. And I think when the three of us talk and we talk about the various worlds in which we inhabit, but with this common thread of what is it like to be an Asian woman in corporate life, in Hollywood, in the film industry, on stage, in a theater. In the culture. Yes, I think bringing all of those um, viewpoints together is interesting because you can see commonality in terms of, you know, exoticization and objectification and all of those wonderful issues. I would love that. I would really love that. So would you two mind just giving us a couple of minutes to tell us about what is a hopeful sign that you see on this topic? I thought long and hard about this and I had several ideas I wanted to talk about. But actually the thing that's closest to my heart at the moment is... My oldest, who was only eight when this whole thing kicked off, is now 13. I have four kids. The first two are girls. And I'm incredibly proud of what she's currently doing. She is an eighth grader. And they have at their school what's called a rite of passage experience, otherwise known as the Ropes Project. And so for her Ropes Project subject, she chose to write about the Me Too movement. And I think that that is a phenomenal thing to be doing at 13 and still only in middle school, not even in high school, because these topics, as we know from this podcast, are hard even for grownups to talk about. And so I think to be able to talk about it as a 13 year old and to stand in a classroom of her peers and to talk about sexual assault and Me Too and oppression and social justice, I think is an incredible thing. I think when I thought about the subject of hope, I thought you know, often saying things like, we're doing this for the next generation. We really hope that our children won't be facing these inequalities in the workplace, that, you know, injustices around, you know, workers uh, who get paid by the hour will be gone by the next generation. You know, we're hopeful for the next generation. But I think when I see that embodied in not only my daughter, but the class of her peers that ask her questions about her project on the Me Too movement, and they are thoughtful, um, engaged, equitable questions asked by both boys and girls in this middle school classroom. I finally feel that all of these injustices and all of this work and lack of recognition and constantly being oppressed and the daily oppression might be worth it if we can put engaged, 
equitable individuals like the ones I see in my daughter's classroom into debate about these valuable issues across society. This is not just for women, because I feel in our generation, we're often talking about it as an issue that is a woman's issue. Mm. And we're often talking about it among women. But I'm now observing classrooms of 13-year-olds of mixed gender that are willing to address these issues of consent and societal change head on. That's hope. That's light. Beautiful. Thank you. Catherine? I'll tell you, the hope really is in children and how we raise them. And we know that sexism and misogyny, it hurts boys too. It hurts our sons. I have five children. I have two girls and three boys, so I understand that. I think for me, given the work that I do, the light is in legislative change, because if we can get to the root of the problem and really get underneath these inequitable laws, inequitable public policies that we have, and really educate lawmakers on the pervasiveness of this problem of primarily how young girls and women are treated. We work on changing statute of limitations, completely eliminating them, eliminating NDAs in child sexual abuse and other sexual assaults as well. We work on legislation for adults as well. So I see the hope and the light in really getting to the core of the problem and being Mm -hmm. voices in the place where there is power. And I believe that there is power in our laws if we get the right people to enforce them and to make them stronger. There is, because you're doing it. You're making it happen. Yeah. Harvey Weinstein is being sued Mm -hmm. in the civil suits in New York based on the bill I worked on for 12 years. Bravo to you. That is incredible. Thank you. That's justice. And same thing with Prince Andrew and many, many others. So although I hated going to Albany for 12 straight years, it was certainly worth the fight. I see a lot of light and justice moving forward as we change our legislation. And mine is kind of similar to both of yours. I was just reflecting on the Me Too movement and how far we've come in that sort of dam burst and yet how much backlash there's been and all the ways that we haven't progressed and things like even the fact that she said was overlooked by the Oscars, even though it was such a wonderful, valuable movie. Um, But at the same time, I look at this generation coming up and my kids and the way that they are, like you're talking about Rowena, so well-versed in these subjects. And we didn't talk about sexual abuse at all when we were growing up, right? So now we are in this entirely different plane and it can only move us forward. And it really does give me a lot of hope. We're doing it. Yeah, we are. We are. Changing minds one at a time. (laughs) Exactly. And hopefully more than one each episode (laughs) of the podcast. (laughs) All right. Thank you both so much. This has been a huge pleasure. And uh, yeah, we'll have a a follow-up. That sounds amazing. It was a real true honor to talk to you both. Great to meet you. You as well. You as well. Thank you so much. Have a great day. Thank you. Have a lovely weekend, both of you. Bye. You too. Thank you for listening. 
Check out the Truth and Consequences website to find all our episodes, photos, and show notes. That's truth, the letter N, consequences.com. If you are interested in information and support about the aftermath of sexual abuse, visit my website, secondwound.com, where you can also sign up for my blog, which often includes posts about my podcast guests. Please also support the podcast with a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. And even easier, tell your friends and follow Truth and Consequences and The Second Wound on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter for updates on episodes and past guests. Thank you for listening and for all the support, everyone. And always remember, your truth matters. Do not miss our next episode with the esteemed Dr. Judith Herman, author of the highly respected book, Trauma and Recovery. Catherine and I were thrilled to speak with Dr. Herman about her new book, Truth and Repair, How Trauma Survivors Envision Justice. It's so good, and you can pre-order it now. It comes out the very day that the episode drops, which is March 14th. Original music for the Truth and Consequences podcast, including our beautiful theme song, is composed and performed by Maddie Morris and produced by Pete Ord of Haystack Records. Thank you, Adam, for all the technical support and for staying open to change, unlike Carson the Butler from Downton Abbey. There is comfort Take your claim to a life without shame There are people who understand Here they're reaching out their hands And there is joy that will bloom On the other side of the second wound And in pain there is unity And with that we are community Side of the second wind.